Turn in the book of forms and prayers to the canons of Dort. You'll find it on page 913 in the Trinity Psalter Hymnal or page 280 in the book of forms and prayers. We're looking at the fifth head of doctrine, article 9 and 10, about assurance of our salvation in uh, Jesus Christ. So, 913, Trinity Psalter Hymnal, 280, Book of Forms and Prayers. Article 9. The assurance of this preservation. Concerning this preservation of those chosen to salvation and concerning the perseverance of true believers in faith, believers themselves can and do become assured in accordance with the measure of their faith by which they firmly believe that they are and always will remain true and living members of the church, and that they have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Article 10, the ground of this assurance. Accordingly, this assurance does not derive from some private revelation beyond or outside the word, but from faith in the promises of God, which he has very plentifully revealed in his word for our comfort, from the testimony of the Holy Spirit, testifying with our spirit that we are God's children and heirs, and finally from a serious and holy pursuit of a clear conscience and of good works. And if God's chosen ones in this world do not have this well-founded comfort that the victory will be theirs, and this reliable guarantee of eternal glory, they would be, of all people, most miserable." And then, in connection with that, I want to turn your attention to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2. You'll find that on page 1,268 in the Pew Bible. 1,268. And I'll read the verses 14 through 19, and the sermon will focus on verse 19. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness." And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity." Thus far, the reading of God's Word. We come this evening to the end of our series on the Canons of Dort. We have plumbed the depths of human depravity and ruin, and we have reached for the heights of the grace of God that is found in Jesus Christ, a grace that has chosen us from before the foundation of the world, 
a grace that has provided a Savior, and in the Savior a full and free salvation, a grace that has brought us from darkness into marvelous light, strangers of Christ, so that we've become his friends, a grace that commits itself to preserving us until that final day when Jesus Christ returns in glory and the fullness of our redemption is finally realized. Grace, grace, marvelous grace. But can I know that that grace is for me? There are some Christians who never question that at all. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, they say. They have full confidence that they are and that they will remain a living member of the church of Christ, that they have forgiveness of sins, that eternal life is going to be theirs, that upon death they leave this world and they go to the world to come where there will be perfect joy and happiness. But there are other Christians who do not have that same confidence and assurance. They're plagued more by doubts and worries They are affected by their own melancholy or by the observation of their own lives, and it discourages them and gives them pause. They live under a cloud and do not always have the the full sense of the sunshine of God's grace upon them. The writers, uh, pastors at the Synod of Dort knew that there were people like this, Christians, who doubt and who struggle. That's why they wanted to say that it is possible for Christians to have assurance that we are not doomed to live in doubt, crossing our fingers that somehow, someday, everything will be okay, that it's right and proper for us to have joy and confidence in God. But there are some who who don't. And these pastoral theologians, they want to address them as well and to encourage them in the most holy faith. And of course, this has been a concern throughout the ages of the church. It's, it's not just these pastoral theologians in the 1600s who had to deal with the concern of lack of assurance. I was speaking with a pastor friend yesterday, and he spoke to me about a young person in his congregation who always doubts, who, who is clear on the gospel, who understands justification by faith alone, and that our righteousness is only the imputed righteousness of Christ given to us and received by faith alone. He knows all that. And yet he doubts. He's fearful and apprehensive about death. And Timothy had those concerns as well, not particularly about individual members, but he had those concerns about the church of Jesus Christ. And so here, Paul engages with Timothy's concerns. And what Paul says about the certainty of the preservation of Christ's church is applicable also to the certainty of the preservation of those who are living members of Christ's church. So let's look at this passage, particularly verse 19, where Paul tells Timothy that God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Well, first of all, What is the background that prompted Paul to say these things? Well, Timothy is a pastor in a church, 
And in that church, there are some unsettling things that he refers to. For instance, he speaks about, in verse 18, of those who have swerved from the truth. They had once professed faith in Jesus Christ, but but they weren't living the life. They weren't confessing the truth. They weren't walking the walk. They had turned away from the truth. The the metaphor that uh, Paul uses is that these people have taken aim at the truth, and they've missed the mark. They've been lousy archers, and they've denied the faith that they once professed. And he singles out two men, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who had embraced erroneous views about the resurrection of the dead. They thought that the resurrection had already happened. And so in every church, there has been people who have confessed Christ, but who have turned out to be imposters, ignorant of Christ, and have embraced the lie rather than the truth. And if that weren't bad enough, these same people who had swerved from the truth were causing unrest within Christ's church. For instance, Paul refers to that in verse 14. He says, remind these false teachers, charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. They're not... uh, Workmen who are rightly handling the word of truth. They're, they're engaged in irreverent babble, which leads people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk is a poison. It spreads like gangrene. And these two men in particular, they are upsetting the faith of some of the people of God. So not only were there some who were imperiling their own salvation, but they were unsettling the rest of God's people. And Timothy is at his wit's end. You know Timothy is timid. And he's wondering, what in the world is happening? Is the church going to survive? Will it stand the test of time? Or will it be swept away by the floods of false teaching that is in his church? He's so concerned about it, and evidently he expressed his concern to Paul. Paul, is the church going to last? Will it continue? And Paul gives an unequivocal answer. He says, all that you're hearing, or all that you're telling me, or all that I've heard you think about the church, I want you to know the truth of the church. It says there at the beginning of verse 19, there's that word, but... So over against all the discouraging things that I've just related about these false teachers who are unsettling the people of God, I want to give you something encouraging. But is actually too weak. It's actually nevertheless. Whatever you might think, Timothy, nevertheless, this is what I want you to know and I want you to think. The church will not perish. It will continue. That's actually what Paul goes on to say in verse 19. But nevertheless, God's firm foundation stands. Now there's all kinds of debate about what the firm foundation is. Some think it's the doctrine of election. Others think it's uh, the teaching of resurrection or Jesus Christ himself. But it seems to me that the most proper understanding of the firm foundation is the firm foundation that underlies the church of Jesus Christ, because that's Paul's concern. That's Timothy's concern. What about the church? And Paul's answering that. 
And Paul's saying, listen, the church will never perish because God's firm foundation stands. You might know that uh, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 verse 20 speaks about the church as a building. He says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. But the church is a structure, it's a house, it's a building. And then in the verse after the passage that we read, Paul refers to in a great house there are not only vessels of gold. Again, a reference to the church. And so Paul is speaking about the church, and then he's speaking about what undergirds the church, the firm foundation of the church. And he's saying it is firm. It is going to stand, come what may, whenever the enemy unleashes against the church, whatever attacks come, whatever floods arise, the church will never be swept away. God's firm foundation stands. The church will never perish. Yes, as we sing, there will there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale against both foe and traitor the church shall ever prevail. Christ will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God's firm foundation stands. And though the superstructure might look weak, though there might be cracks in the wall, though there might be unsettling doctrine and false teaching, though people might wander away from the faith, though others might be upset in the faith, the church will continue. God's firm foundation stands. That's Paul's refrain to Timothy's concern. Whatever you see, Timothy, nevertheless know this, God's firm foundation stands. Well, how can Paul be so confident about the firm foundation, the church standing? Well, he talks about this firm foundation has a seal or an inscription on it. Some of you children have probably seen a sidewalk, and that when the sidewalk was being poured, while the cement was still wet, someone wrote in the corner perhaps their, their name or the date or their name and the date. That's an, an inscription. And Paul says the church's foundation has this inscription, has two things written upon it. First, the Lord knows those who are his. And secondly, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And it's on these two inscriptions that Paul builds his confidence that the church will forever stand. Well, what does he mean when he talks about the Lord knows those who are his? It seems that the background to this uh, verse or this reference is Numbers 16 in the Old Testament. Paul is not quoting here from the Hebrew. He's actually quoting from the Greek Septuagint of the Old Testament, a, a, a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. But here's the story. Israel is 
not yet in the promised land. They're en route. And then uh, there's an uprising within the people of God. There's Korah and Dathan and Abiram and then on. And uh, they gather together a, a crowd of men around them, and then they go and accost Moses and Aaron. And basically what they say to Moses and Aaron, who do you guys think you are? Like, you're the leaders here, but who made you the leaders? What's so, what, what makes you think you're so special? All of God's people, he says, they say, in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why do you think you should be set apart as leaders within God's people? And Moses, uh, when he heard it, he was uh, perplexed. He fell on his face, and he says to Korah and to all of his friends, in the morning, the Lord will show who is his. In the morning, the Lord will make a distinction between those whom he has set apart within his church and those who want to be leaders in his church, those whom he has set apart as leaders in his church and those who are presuming on that and wish to be made leaders themselves. And so as the story goes on, God does show those who are his. And uh, Dathan and Abiram and all of their uh, allies, they're standing in one place, and then the earth opens up and swallows Korah and all of his cohorts. God has demonstrated those who are his. And so Paul picks up on that, on that story and on that phrase, and he says the Lord knows those who are his. So what Paul is saying is that within the congregation of the people of God, within the church, not all within the church are actually members, true living members of the church. Remember Paul had said in Romans that not all Israel is Israel. That uh, as our Belgian Confession says, that within the church there are true believers who expect their salvation in Jesus Christ, and there are hypocrites. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, listen, the fact that there are people who are wandering away from the faith, who have turned their backs on true doctrine, that should not make you think that the whole church is in jeopardy of being destroyed. Because the Lord knows those who are his. That within the church, the visible church of God, the church that you see all around you, within the invisible church, there is the elect, those whom God has chosen from before the foundation of the world, those whom God has loved from eternity, those whom God has set apart as his own, those whom God has elected for salvation and given to his son, Jesus Christ. He says those will never perish. They will never be destroyed. They will never ultimately leave the faith because the God who has chosen them from before the foundation of the world is the God who will hold on to them forever. No one can snatch them from Christ's hands, nor can they snatch him, them from his Father's hands. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, don't be so concerned. Yes, there are some falling away, no doubt about it. I can see why you're upset, that others are being upset. But listen, the jeopardy, the salvation of those whom the Lord knows as his own in a particular way, 
their salvation is not thwarted or jeopardized. The God who has chosen them in eternity past will bring them all the way through this life and will bring them to eternity future. He has chosen them. He has given them a Savior. He has brought them to the Savior. He has given them life and with trials and tribulations and the attacks of the enemy. And sometimes you wonder if they're going to last. But don't be concerned, Timothy. The Lord knows those who are his. And he will carry them through, preserve them to eternal life. In fact, uh, you might remember how Jesus said that uh, sometimes the temptations are so great that it almost seems like the elect themselves will fall away. But uh, not a chance. Not a chance. Why? Because the Lord knows those who are His. He has loved them everlastingly and will love them to the end. So that's the firm foundation. That's, or that's why Paul can say the firm foundation stands If it depended upon humans, Paul would never speak with such confidence. He hears all these stories about people who have swerved away from the truth, people who are teaching false doctrines so that other Christians are upset. And and if if the longevity of the church depended on, on human decision, well, Paul would say, yeah, I see what you're saying, Timothy, and... I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Let's cross our fingers and hope for the best. But because he knows that the church is ultimately those whom God has chosen from before the foundation of the world, he's absolutely confident. Nevertheless, God's firm foundation stands because the Lord knows those who are his. But then there's another part to this inscription Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So the one part of the inscription is private and invisible. The Lord knows those who are his. We can't access the book of life where God has written the names of those whom he has chosen. But those whom God has chosen will demonstrate their chosenness by the way that they live. They will name the name of the Lord and depart from iniquity. So again, what what Paul is highlighting to Timothy, yeah, there there are some who are going to fall away within the church, people who worship once and then have turned away from the faith and have embraced false doctrine and false living. That's true. But that, again, does not undermine the integrity of the church itself. The firm foundation still stands. God has chosen. Those whom he has chosen will not fall. And those whom he has chosen will live a godly life. If they don't live the godly life, if they swerve from the faith, it only demonstrates that they were never chosen in the first place. So God's secret election is revealed. What is secret becomes public. What is invisible becomes visible in the local body of God's people. So what is characteristic about those whom God has chosen? Well, two things. First, 
they name the name of the Lord. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. They name the name of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Well, it is an Old Testament way of saying that they identify themselves with the Lord Jesus. Uh, The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 44 speaks about uh, the blessing that God will pour out upon the descendants of the people of God. And, And one of the evidences of his spirits working in their lives is that the people, these children, will name themselves by the name of Israel. That is, they will identify with the church. Well, here Paul talks about these people whom God has chosen. You know that God has chosen them because they identify with Jesus. They name his name as their sovereign. They swear allegiance to the Lord Jesus, and they trust him as their Savior. They know their sins. They know that they deserve the punishment of God, and they have found in Jesus Christ a perfect remedy because Christ has taken upon himself their sins and has died in their place. They name the name of the Lord. It's another way of saying they are trusting in the Lord Jesus. And those who name the name of the Lord are the ones who name the name of the Lord in truth are those who also depart from iniquity. We know that there are people who name the name of the Lord, but who are not really Christians. The Lord Jesus speaks about them on that day, saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy and in your, in your name and in your name cast out many demons? They name the name of the Lord, but the Lord Jesus said, depart from me because they were evildoers. And so true Christians are not only those who say they trust in Jesus Christ and who take the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, but they also are those who depart from iniquity. They reject false doctrine, and they reject false living. Anything unrighteous, anything that displeases God, displeases them. And whatever the Father loves, they love because they've been chosen by God, and they demonstrate their election by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and by departing from iniquity. So those who do not depart from iniquity, who embrace false doctrine, for instance, that the resurrection has already passed, those who who embrace teaching that spreads like gangrene, those who embrace irreverent babble that leads people into more and more ungodliness. They might name the name of the Lord, but they don't abstain from iniquity. And therefore, they're not true believers. We can have no confidence that they are chosen from before the foundation of the world. So Paul is saying to Timothy, don't let those kinds of people discourage you or make you think that the whole enterprise of Christ's church is going to crumble at your feet. No, because God does have his own within the body of believers. Not all, but he has those who are his, and they are demonstrated by trusting in the Lord Jesus, naming his name, and departing 
from iniquity. So that's Paul's answer to Timothy. Timothy's distressed. Paul says, listen, Timothy, don't be so discouraged or disheartened. The church shall never perish. It will remain because God has chosen, and those whom God has chosen will embrace Christ and depart from iniquity. Now, I said that uh, what gives confidence about the church's preservation and perseverance is also what gives us confidence about an individual believer's preservation and perseverance in the faith. How can I know that this grace is mine? How can I know that I am and will remain a living member of the church, that I have forgiveness of sins and eternal life? Well, here's three answers. The first is because of the election of God. If God has chosen you, He will never unchoose you. He doesn't have second thoughts. You know, sometimes we go to the store and we look at an array of options and we take the one and we choose it, we purchase it, we take it home, and then we think, ah, should have got the other one. God never does that. He never chooses anyone and then says, oh, why did I do that? No, His Word is faithful. His choice is from eternity, and it lasts forever. And so this is the confidence that we can have, that if I'm elect, God will never let me go. He will always keep me. That's why we sang from Psalm 121 in, in, our, in our Trinity Psalter hymnal this evening, because it reassures us that God has chosen us and God will keep us. But you say, how's that helpful? Because my question is, am I elect? And you're telling me you can be assured of your salvation because of the doctrine of election, but, but I can't see the doctrine. I can't read the book of life. So how do I know? Well, the pastors of the Synod of Dort and the Scriptures themselves, they say this. They say, you can be certain of your salvation if you name the name of the Lord Jesus. If you embrace the promises of God, all the promises of God, find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So, so whatever God has promised, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, preservation in the faith, whatever God has promised, you can find it all in Jesus Christ. So are you clinging to the Lord Jesus? Are you trusting in Him? Not, not necessarily with a strong, unwavering faith, because your security doesn't depend on the strength of your faith so much as the strength of the one in whom you have faith. Your security depends on Christ holding you fast. And are you trusting in the Lord Jesus? When one of my elders died in Scotland a number of years ago, he was telling me, before he died, of course, he was telling me of, of someone who, who had um, asked him, he said, Roderick, are, are you holding on to the Lord Jesus? And he says, I've got better news than that. The Lord Jesus is holding on to me. That's our confidence that I embrace Christ, even with the smallest of faith, but even the smallest faith gives me a big Savior. And in Him, I'm absolutely safe and secure. So that's the confidence I can have. How do I know? 
because I, I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's another avenue to give you confidence that you are en route to eternal life. And that is that you look at your life, and though you do see difficulties and sins and backslidings at times, you know in your heart of hearts, your conscience confirms this, that what I want to do more than anything else is serve the Lord. And what I want to be more than anyone else is a faithful follower of Christ. I want to abstain from iniquity. I want to depart from evil. I want to be a godly person. And, in, and, and when I'm not, I don't just shrug it off and say, well, we're all sinners, but it bothers me. It's lamentable. I was speaking with someone recently, and she was speaking about how sometimes she has this cold heart to the grace of God, feeling unmoved. And she lamented that, as we should. How can we, in, in light of all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ, think nonchalantly about the Lord Jesus and be cold and unthrilled with the grace of God? But sometimes we do as Christians. But we lament it. Our desire, our goal, our aim, our longing is to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you look at yourself and you see that God has given you grace to, to despair of yourself and to trust in the Lord Jesus. And you look at your life and you see that there is growth in grace and a desire for holiness and maturing in godliness. And you say the only way that this could ever happen in this poor sinner's life is if God had chosen me from before the foundation of the world. And if God has begun that good work in me in eternity past, so that by his grace, because I, I wouldn't have this for myself, by his grace, I cling to the promises of God in Jesus Christ. And by his grace, I walk in obedience, not perfectly, but I strive to and I want to. Where does this come from? Except from the God of all grace. And he who began the work, will certainly bring it to an end. So I can have assurance, not in myself, but in God, in his electing grace and in his saving grace that I see realized in my own life by his mercy and grace. And so dear struggling brother or sister, you have apprehensions and concerns. You wonder how a God like God could ever have anything to deal with you. And you wonder if on that great day you will be found in the assembly of the elect in life eternal. Take heart. He knows your frame. He understands your weaknesses. The Lord Jesus walked the life that you're walking. He knows the struggles and the difficulties. He's tender-hearted. But know that if the grace of God is seen in your life now, his love is a steadfast love. It will never let you go. And he will bring you all the way through until you are in the heavenly kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.
Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given your word to us to minister to us in our faltering, in our wavering, in our weakness, and that you have bid us not to look at ourselves, but to look on high where you reign and where Christ is seated at your right hand, to be confident not in our choice of you, but in your choice of us to be confident not in our faith in Christ, but in Christ in whom our faith is, to be confident in your grace that is changing us from one degree of glory to another. So bless us, our God, that we might have the full joy of our salvation, that we might be glad, that we might be cheerful Christians, that we might be confident Christians, and that we might long for that day when faith becomes sight, And when seeing the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be completely like him. And when all doubts and fears and apprehensions will be swept away. And when we will be in the presence of our gracious, electing, saving God forever and ever. We pray that you would go with us in this coming week. That you would help us to encourage each other as we have opportunity. That you would strengthen us in in the fight of faith, that Christ would dwell in us, that we would comprehend the great love of Christ, and that we would uh, walk in holiness, uh, seeking to please you in our homes, in our school, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, wherever we are, for the praise of your glory. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.